Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word, for making yourself known through its pages. I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to you now. Amen. A tourist walked too close to the edge of the cliffs. He lost his footing and he just managed to avoid falling to the bottom by grabbing a rather thin and scrubby bush. Filled with terror, he called out towards heaven, is there anyone up there? I suspect to his surprise, a calm yet powerful voice came out of the sky saying, yes, there is. The tourist begged, please, can you help me? Yes, I probably can. What is your problem? I fell over the cliff and I'm dangling in space, holding onto a bush that's about to give way. Help me. The voice above said, I'll try. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Do you have faith? Yes, I have faith. Then simply let go of the bush and everything will be fine. There was a tense pause, and then the tourist yelled, Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) After several weeks of hearing about kings of Israel and of Judah who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, we've reached Hezekiah. Hezekiah, we're told, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, according to chapter 18 and verse 5, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. And the reason for this accolade, well, for one thing, as we heard last week, Hezekiah tackled the thorny matter of idol worship. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. All the little pagan shrines dotted around the countryside were removed by Hezekiah. And in every decision that he made, Hezekiah sought the Lord and listened for his voice, often with the help of Isaiah the prophet, as we'll hear. What these two points have in common is that they're both concerned with trusting in the true and living God alone and not hedging your bets, not trying to keep all the other so-called gods happy as well. So tonight we'll look at what Hezekiah teaches us about trusting in the Lord. If you'd like to turn back to 2 Kings chapter 19, you'll find it on page 391. Last week, we joined Hezekiah after a lot of big events of his reign had already happened. Let's take a look at the history so far to see just what Hezekiah was up against. These were turbulent times. Already in his reign, in the sixth year of it, Samaria had been taken captive by Sennacherib, and Israel had been deported to Assyria, There were two kingdoms by this time. Israel was the northern kingdom with their own king, 
Judah was the southern kingdom. So Judah's sister country of Israel had already been deported to Assyria. And then in chapter 18 and verse 12, we're told that this had happened because Israel had neither listened to God's commands nor carried them out. Ten years later, all the fortified cities of Judah have just been captured by the Assyrians, with the exception of Jerusalem. And the nation has paid a high price for this. In return for an assurance that Sennacherib would withdraw, Hezekiah handed over 11 tons of silver, a ton of gold, plus all the silver from the palace and the gold from the doors of the temple. And a fat lot of good it did. Sennacherib is not a man of his word. No sooner has he unpacked the loot than he's threatening to take Jerusalem itself. So Hezekiah is faced with a foreign king who has some real military might. He's already used it successfully against Israel and Judah and other nations around. And then in 1831, Sennacherib's field commander is now shouting a mixture of threats and bribes in the hearing of Hezekiah's own people. And this is what he says. Don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. As Mark said last week, the field commander is mimicking the language used by the Old Testament about the promised land. And he's even mimicking the words of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 30, exhorting the people to obey the commandments of God, choose life. Then he goes on to claim that since the Lord himself has told Sennacherib to invade, it's pointless for anybody to resist. His whole speech is blasphemy against the living God. That is why Hezekiah's staff, who went out to the field commander, tore their clothes before going to report to the king. And when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes too. So now let's think about Hezekiah's response. Why so many clothes in tatters? On the one hand, there was the might of Sennacherib and his army. On the other... There was the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, who would have heard all of this. As a sign that they dissociate themselves from these blasphemous words, Hezekiah and his staff tear their clothes. It's a sign of penitence, and they put on sackcloth. Judah had gone through so much, and now there was more suffering to come, It seemed as pointless as a woman going through pregnancy and then not having the strength to deliver, if you look at verse 3. 
Hezekiah must have rued the day that he ever made a bargain with Sennacherib and gave away so much of the nation's wealth for it all to come to this. It was a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. He sends his staff off to seek counsel with Isaiah and to ask the prophet to intercede. And it's difficult to tell from the text whether Hezekiah was seeing Sennacherib's blasphemy as a threat to Judah or whether he hoped that the Lord would now take action against Assyria because of it. Whichever it was, Hezekiah was concerned that the remnant of God's people should survive. But how to do it? Hezekiah can't make peace with Assyria because that would compromise God's, Judah's faithfulness to Yahweh. Isaiah referred to these kinds of alliances as a covenant with death. And anyway, Hezekiah has already seen how much Sennacherib's promises are worth. But with the country's reserves depleted, the chances of fighting off the threat must have seemed remote. Hezekiah must have been waiting with bated breath for his staff to return from Isaiah. Back they come in verse 5, bearing good news. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king have blasphemed me. And then in verse 8, we get a glimpse of the possibility that the king of Assyria couldn't even keep in step with his own field commander. Sennacherib had gone to fight in Libna and had not told him. So when the second lot of threats reach Hezekiah, this time by letter, he knows what to do. Something has changed in Hezekiah. Earlier, he'd turned to the Lord in desperation and fear. This time, he does so with confidence and trust. And so, in verse 14, we find Hezekiah going into the temple and spreading out the letter before the Lord. That suggests real closeness between Hezekiah and God. Hezekiah is showing a trusted father the complexity of the situation you half expect them to put the kettle on and sit down together with it. And then Hezekiah begins to focus on the majesty and the greatness of God. He acknowledges the destruction and suffering that Sennacherib has caused to many nations, and he prays for deliverance for his people so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that the Lord alone is God. And God answers Hezekiah's prayer. He speaks through Isaiah. And then follows the prophecy against Sennacherib. We're round about verse 21 now. Jerusalem is as vulnerable as a young girl faced with the threat of the Assyrian army. But she's not scared. Sennacherib is not insulting her. His insults are against none other than God, the Holy One of Israel. 
That name for God contains an indicator of the deep reassurance that was being felt by this time. To refer to God as the Holy One of Israel emphasizes his power and majesty, as well as his love and purity. And it's a reminder to Hezekiah that there is a special relationship between the Lord and his people. Isaiah is reminding Hezekiah that God has called his people by name. They are his. There are joys and there are demands on both parties. Sennacherib's boasts are in vain. He has only acted the way God had allowed and planned. And he is the one who will be led away captive with a ring through his nose and a bit in his mouth, just the manner in which he had led away others. He won't enter the city. In fact, he'll be sent packing the way he came. And that is said twice in verse 28 and 33, that they will see the back of him. And then in verse 29 comes a sign for Hezekiah, a sign that the siege will not last forever. In fact, it will be of just three years' duration. In the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In other words, get ready for the departure of the Assyrians. The remnant, the band of survivors for whom Hezekiah had asked Isaiah to pray in verse 4, they will take root and bear fruit. God's purposes for his people will not be thwarted. In verse 34, God promises that he will defend the city. He will save it for his own sake and for the sake of his servant David. Hezekiah is being encouraged to dig right down deep into the roots of the history of the nation and to think back to the great days of King David. And then in verse 35, we read that that very night, the angel of the Lord put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Sennacherib went back to Nineveh and stayed there. Sometime later, he met a sticky end at the hands of his own sons. Sometime you might like to read on into chapter 20. And you'll find that Hezekiah was not brave in the face of death. And he also received a a ticking off from Isaiah for what I can only think was a spectacularly silly action. But it wasn't just silly. The motive was wrong. Hezekiah was now considering, after all of this, was now considering making an alliance with Babylon against the Assyrians, just the kind of covenant of death that Isaiah had warned him against in the past. And yet Hezekiah is remembered as a great king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. His greatness was not that he didn't make mistakes or that he was especially brave, Hezekiah's greatness was that he trusted in the Lord, even though at times that trust was wobbly. 
Sometimes he had very little choice. There was simply nowhere else to go, nowhere at least that would yield any fruit. But the Lord was gracious to him. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where really all you could do was to trust in God. You might like to think about how God responded to you. I think this matter of trusting in God is one of the most important but most difficult things for us to learn. When things get tough, it's so easy to start making our own plans, getting some control over the situation. We're doing it before we realise it. Especially, I suspect, if other people are going to suffer if things go wrong. It's one thing to trust God for ourselves, but maybe it's even harder to do that when the happiness and well-being of other people is at stake too. But in all of this taking charge of the situation for ourselves... Perhaps we can be a bit like a seagull that somebody I know saw on a beach. It was taking a bath in an old motorcycle helmet that had filled up with water. And it was oblivious, as far as she could see, to all the water of the sea that it could have used. The helmet probably felt safe and the water would be warmer, but it was limiting when he could have been swimming in the ocean, well, the North Sea anyway. If we take difficult decisions to the Lord in prayer, there's no guarantee that we'll have an easy time. This time was followed by siege of Jerusalem and eventual exile. But it's in prayer that we discover what we're afraid of, and begin to find the resources to deal with those fears, to grow in grace and love and trust, and in the knowledge of God's faithfulness, the most important discovery of all. Amen. So let's pray.